Episode 10 Enter Freely This is Casey James. I don't know where exactly I am. I don't know what's going on. There's a lot I don't know. But I'm going to figure it out. I found a knife, I say weakly, and hold up the silver dagger. Mara Hartsman's eyes gleam like a predator in the dark. And she says, Good choice. Well then, uh, we'll just get out of your hair, shall we? Says Deacon. He doesn't really even wait for Mara to respond, although she does nod. He just grabs onto my wrist and tugs, moving us both past the pools of blood and the decapitated wolfman's head on the floor. Outside, I pause for my eyes to adjust and glance at him. I thought you were friends with her, I say. Friendly more than friends, he says with a hint of a shrug. After bringing night gaunts up here, well, best to get out of her space if I want to keep it that way. And I do. Night gaunts? I ask. Oh, don't worry, it's too bright for them to be about now. Nodens never really did like being too close to a star. That really didn't answer the question I was actually asking. I give Deacon another sideways glance, which he doesn't seem to notice. If he does, he pretends not to. He doesn't give me any more of an answer than that. It isn't that long a walk back into town from here, but... By the time we get there, the bright, midsummer sky has clouded over. There are dark, roiling clouds overhead, and in the air, the heavy, oppressive sense of thunder. The main street is all but deserted, everyone hurrying indoors before the storm breaks. It's odd, but the street seems different to how I remember it. Not vastly different, but... I would have sworn there was a bookshop on the corner, with big glass windows and books I couldn't quite make out the titles of, that had shutters they closed at night and raised in the morning. Now it's a law firm or a dentist or something, just a door and an office, and a sign that says Mason and Bridges. And the main street used to lead right down to the beach, I'm sure of it. This one runs parallel. Even Deacon seems different somehow, although I'm struggling to put my finger on exactly what the difference is. Does this... any of this seem... odd to you? I ask Deacon. Not really, he replies. I mean, there should be some more people about, but it looks like it's going to rain, so that's probably why. Or do you mean the storm? That is a bit unusual for the middle of summer. No, I meant more, was that always an office? And wasn't there some sort of boat hire thing just down there, at the wharf? 
There was a wolf there before, right? No, says Deacon, looking a little confused. Are you okay, Casey? Right, um, never mind, I murmur. I- I'm fine. Let's go. Maybe it is just me. I am dreaming, after all, or something like it. Walking through other people's dreams, maybe. The hotel looks the same as I remember. An old stone building with a projecting doorway of massive stone blocks. The door itself made of dark wood and studded with nails, with a carved gargoyle on either side of the doorway, where the gutters come out. I have some idea that it's a historical building of some sort, although I don't recall any details. Right now, I'm just grateful that it hasn't changed. For all of about twenty seconds, until I go to open the front door and it opens before I can, revealing David standing in the doorway. David, who I last saw chanting some weird ritual on the clifftop in front of the monolith, if you discount the weirdly lifelike statues of him and Leanne in the sculptor's studio, where we found Kezia's journal, after which we were chased through the woods by cultists. David, who is wearing a long, black, hooded robe, although the hood is down at the moment. I stop and take a step back. (sighs) In defiance of any sort of good sense, Deacon moves past me, through the door, and says, David, you made it down all right then. Didn't run into any trouble in the woods? I blink and look over at Deacon incredulously. Does he not remember the cultists chasing us through the woods from the cliffs? Cultists who, I am fairly certain, were led by David and Leanne? It's enough of a surprise that I actually say that out loud. Did did you just forget that he was one of the cultists in the woods? The ones chasing us? Summoning Pan or Dracula or... Whoever it is they've summoned. The god in the woods, says David. Pan, or Dionysus, if you like. Dracula's a new one on me, but I suppose it's as good a name for him as any other. Do come inside. I don't think so, I tell him. Then I turn to Deacon and say, Seriously, he's literally wearing cultist robes. Deacon pauses then says, Well, yes, but... No buts about it, I say. We've spent half the night trying to avoid these cultists and whatever they've summoned. We waded through an underground river to avoid them. We're not going to just go in there now? With the murderous cultists? They tied you to an underground altar. That wasn't David, says Deacon. You don't know that, I counter. It could have been. It wasn't, says David. I give him a dirty look and say to Deacon, Doesn't matter, he's still one of them. He's probably with Ehrlich Khan, too. Well, says David. But I glare at him and he shuts up. 
I'm not going in there if it's full of cultists, I say firmly. Casey, says Deacon, but I shake my head. No, there's got to be somewhere else we can go. Constable Delaney would... Casey, says Deacon again, his gaze fixed over my shoulder on something behind me. I think we should go inside. I glance back. Behind me, slinking up the deserted street, are a trio of wolves. If anyone ever tries to tell you that a real, live wolf isn't scary, you should probably consider that person to be an idiot. Real wolves are huge, bigger than a Great Dane, almost the size of a small pony, with teeth like a nightmare and mouths big enough to literally bite your head off. These three are shaggy, with rough, dark fur that shades between black and a sort of slate grey, and their eyes are glowing, a sickly orange-yellow colour. They're skinny, too, almost emaciated. I can see the outlines of their ribs and the knobs of their spines, and I imagine that I can hear their empty stomachs growling as they look at me. Be welcome in my master's house, says David cheerily. Enter freely and of your own will. Why are you being so friendly? I ask, although I edge closer to the door. Human cultists who aren't threatening my life right this second are marginally less concerning to me than the wolves. Why wouldn't I be? You spend midsummer night awake on the bluff besides the monolith, says David. You are blessed by the old ones. I really think you should come inside, Casey, says Deacon, looking past me at the wolves. Fine, I mutter. I'm going to regret this, but fine. I go inside. The inside of the hotel is different. The dark stone of the exterior walls follows us inside, where I remember white painted plaster covering any exposed stone. It is broken by sections of timber panelling and a burgundy coloured brocade wallpaper, which used to be pale blue, I think, in a floral pattern. And there are more rooms than there should be. More doors than I remember, but also just more space than should be possible. There are no windows either, or none that I can reach or look out of. There are some narrow stained glass windows high up in the walls, shedding coloured light inside without being of any other use. David shows us to rooms on the first floor, which might even be the same rooms we had before. They're next door to one another, just like before and mine, at least, is much the same size and shape as my old room was. There is no window. The walls are covered with hanging tapestries, including one of a unicorn held captive in a small paddock, and the furniture is different, all heavy, dark wood, but my suitcase is there next to the bed. The suitcase, mind you, that I didn't pack or bring with me when I started my road trip to look for the bridge house, 
Never mind bring to Kingsport with me, however I got here. I grab a change of clothes and my towel and toiletries and go across the hall to the bathroom I share with Deacon. He's not using it, so I lock myself in and have a shower. You have no idea how much better a hot shower and being clean and dry can make you feel. Clean clothes, too. I rinse out my muddy trainers and put them near the door to dry and drop everything else in the laundry hamper in my room. And then I hunt through my suitcase on the basis that I would have packed another pair of shoes if I had packed the suitcase and brought it with me. I'm right, too. There's a pair of lace-up canvas sailing shoes at the bottom of the bag. There's also a flashlight which goes into my shoulder bag straight away. Then I go and find Deacon. It's not hard to do. He's in his room, which is right next to mine. The first thing I notice when he opens his door is that his room has mirrors on the ceiling. It's otherwise very similar to my room, although his bed covers a burgundy and scarlet velvet instead of green and blue like mine. But a mirrored ceiling. That's novel, I say instead of a greeting. It really is, he says. I don't think I had mirrors on the ceiling in the last room. No, he didn't. I've seen Deacon's room. I saw it when we headed out for our walk along the beach yesterday. God, only yesterday. Anyway, he didn't have a mirrored ceiling. There's pink champagne, too, says Deacon dryly. I think someone's making a statement. Pink champagne, I echo, confused. There is, indeed, an ice bucket with a wine bottle in it on the side table next to his bed, and a single champagne flute, but I don't know what song he's referencing. I shrug. Sure, so what's the statement? We are all just prisoners here of our own device, says Deacon. He sighs. You might have had the right idea not coming inside. I do not say I told you so, but I think it quite hard. What I do say is, we could just leave then. I don't think it'll be that easy, says Deacon. But he comes downstairs with me to try anyway. It is not that easy. First of all, the front door is locked, and there's no one around. I haven't seen any of the hotel staff, actually, which makes things awkward. David let us in, I say. Maybe he can let us out. Deacon sort of nods and shrugs at the same time, and we start looking for David. We find him, eventually, in the courtyard along with a half-dozen other people, all in the long black robes that all the cultists seem to wear. They're drinking wine and drawing some horrific glyph on the stone paving of the courtyard using red wax crayons. 
have to look away from it, because every time I glance at the wax crayon lines, a headache starts to build behind my eyes. Not a good sign. We make our way over to him, being careful not to step on the wax crayon lines on the ground. David, I say. He turns and smiles, smirks really, at me. Casey, he says. Deacon, you look much better. Deacon has also had a shower and changed clothes although I'm not sure how he managed it, since I was sort of hogging the shower. Thanks, says Deacon. The the door's locked. Can you open it? I ask. I could, says David. But you're not going to? Says Deacon. Not quite a question, although it sounds a bit like one. More like he's testing a theory. Not until he arrives, says David. It won't be long, I promise. Have some wine while you wait. No, thank you, I say. Suit yourselves, says David. We head back into the hotel proper with its endless corridors and hallways. I don't think it even had a courtyard before, much less a fully enclosed one with high stone walls like a prison yard, and gargoyles poking their withered and disfigured heads off the rooftop. At least the corridors inside are just normal nightmare fuel. I might be able to do something, says Deacon quietly. Like what? I ask, just as quietly. We need to be further down for it to work, though, he says. Further down, I repeat, thinking of the advice that Walker and Ariel gave me. Okay, I guess we find some stairs then. As if the building itself is sentient, as soon as we stop looking for a way out, it suddenly gets much easier to find anything else we try to look for. We stumble across a spiral staircase, corkscrewing downwards, only minutes later, and start descending. It's only a single flight of stairs, but it's enough to transition from wood panelling and wallpaper to rough stone walls lit by strips of bare fluorescent lighting. There are fewer doors down here, and the ones there are have bars and padlocks on them. Deacon seems sure of his direction now, and leads the way down a side corridor. Here, he says, stopping at a random spot. It should be here somewhere. What should be? I ask. The lever, he says, distractedly, patting at the wall. We're deep enough now, there should be a lever or something. Places like this always have secret tunnels. As he speaks, there's a click, and then a section of the stone wall slides in and swings open. Deacon grins. 
Aha. Uh-huh. It looks like he's right. There was actually a lever and a secret door. That'll show me for not believing him. Deegan seems to have a much better idea of how this dream world works than I do. Maybe it's his dream. Makes me wonder what'll happen when he wakes up. Behind the secret door is a cell. Maybe an oubliette. It's a small square room with four human skeletons in it. All of them old, the bones faded to that brownish ivory colour that you see on the the fake resin ones in science labs. I don't think these are fake. One of them is chained to the wall by its wrists. The others are just sprawled in corners. Bother, says Deacon. This isn't what I was looking for. I step into the room, drawn by a feeling that I can't identify. It tingles across my skin like a fizz of sherbet or pop rocks. A weird sort of pull, a certainty, like I felt at the door of the bridge house, that something is in here that I need. Casey, says Deacon. I shake my head. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just following an instinct that says I need to move forward. Out in the corridor, I can hear footsteps. But I don't care. Can't care. I take another step past the skeletons and place my hand on the wall, palm down. Three things happen all at once. Another section of wall clicks in and swings open, leading out from the cell. Oh, I see, says Deacon. Very clever, says David from the doorway. I turn around sharply, surprised. Although I heard his footsteps, I don't know why I'm shocked to see him. I'm afraid I can't let you leave just yet, he says. Deacon grins, that sharp, dangerous grin that doesn't quite fit his face, and yet does. He reaches into his jacket pocket and pulls out a tiny, dog-eared book, which is held shut with a brass latch, and holds it out to me without taking his eyes off of David. Here, he says. You should take this. The chaos key will open it when you need it. What is it? I ask. But I take it anyway. The last time I didn't believe Deacon, he turned out to be right, and actually on my side. I'm prepared to extend a little trust, even if I'm pretty sure this is not the real Deacon anymore. The Book of Tales, says Deacon. He glances at me and winks, then adds, Go on, Casey. I'll delay this lot and catch up to you later. You're so close now. I do really want to see what you do when you get there. Well, that's not creepy at all. Are you sure? I ask. Sure as can be, he says, 
I won't have Pan's cultists delaying you with complications, no matter how nice the hospitality is. After all, you are blessed by the old ones. But the stories never said which old ones. I hesitate a second longer, but Deacon turns that sharp grin on David again, and it frankly scares me. The grin itself, and the expression on David's face facing it. I turn and hurry into the secret passage behind the secret door in the hidden secret oubliette. No time like the present. I have places to be.